You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Stadiums and arenas are locations where fans spend their entertainment dollars, and the competition is increasing. How do stadium tenants engage their fan base? We'll find out from Nathalie Davis. What was it like at Baltimore's Camden Yards the night Cal Ripken broke baseball's consecutive game record? We'll find out from broadcaster Mel Proctor, who was at the microphone when it happened. We'll learn how a group of civic-minded people in Lexington, Kentucky, broke away to build Rupp Arena. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madorin says new money is in the pipeline for a dome stadium in Las Vegas. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the Oakland Raiders have notified the NFL that they have received a commitment from Bank of America to finance their proposed $1.9 billion dome stadium in Las Vegas. The contribution fills the funding gap created when Vegas casino magnate Sheldon Adelson withdrew his financial commitment. This clears the way for the Raiders to formally apply for relocation at the NFL owners' meetings later this month. Bill and Mark will break down all of the specifics later in the show. Well, the unseasonably warm winter weather caused postponement of the Minnesota Timberwolves game this week at the Target Center. Condensation formed on the court from ice beneath the floor. Several Disney on Ice shows had just taken place at the arena. A T-Wolves spokesperson said humidity in the air caused the condensation. When the players started warming up, they started slipping on the floor. Well, some liked it. Others, like Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green, did not. Referring to Madison Square Garden, opting to pull all music, video, and in-game entertainment during the first half of last weekend's Knicks-Warriors contest. It was pure basketball, with fans near the court being able to hear the squeak of the sneakers and hearing players and coaches shouting out play calls. The Warriors' green went as far to say as the silence was disrespectful. No word on if the Knicks will bring the silent treatment back for a future game. And the standoff continues in the Valley of the Sun. The Arizona Coyotes and the NHL this week threatened to move the team out of the state if the legislature does not approve $225 million in public financing for a new arena. Commissioner Gary Bettman sent a letter to the Arizona Senate president urging him to push through a public financing bill that is currently stalled. The Coyotes desperately want out of Gila River Arena a place that they are calling not economically viable. Bill, that's the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. Competition for the sports dollar is stiff. There are so many options out there pulling sports fans in different directions. How do teams on the pro and college level compete, and how do they survive the sports fan engagement game? Part of the process is trying to recruit new fans and create and develop relationships with potential fan groups. That process was the main focus of a conference that just wrapped up the fourth annual Sports Engagement Conference held in Atlanta. Our next guest 
headed up that conference. Nathalie Davis is the product manager for Q1 Productions. Nathalie's marketing firm specializes in helping entities to build those relationships. Nathalie, this is a fascinating idea. You're based uh, here in Chicago. Tell us about how you saw the need for this and why you moved to try and fill it. We are based in Chicago. Our company, Q1 Productions, we produce conferences and educational meetings for a variety of industries, and the sports industry is is one of them and definitely one that I'm very passionate about. Uh, The reason we came up with this topic is we saw this topic of fan engagement is obviously a big buzzword in the industry, and a lot of teams are devoting a lot more time and resources to fan engagement and the fan experience. And so we saw that there was a need for a conference like this that was devoted and dedicated to digital and marketing teams from across the sports industry where they would have an opportunity to come together and really you know discuss the challenges and opportunities they find with fan engagement a lot of times when they get together it's really within their own leagues whether it's within the college athletic space nfl nba you know what it whatever it may be and so we thought it would be great if we could bring all of those different perspectives together Hmm. both in the speaking panel and in the attendance so that they could hear, you know, if you're in college, hey, what's the NFL doing with fan engagement? What is NASCAR doing with fan engagement? You know, what's Fox Sports doing about fan engagement? So I think that this is a really great opportunity for people to hear from across the entire industry about, you know, fan engagement, innovation, and, um, you know, different strategies that have been really successful. Nathalie, in a previous era limited mostly to mass media, fan engagement would have taken place through the mass media. Now we have certainly a totally moving landscape. It's drilled down a lot. We have individual forms of communication that are coming through the internet, through portable devices, things of this nature. Contrast that a little bit and tell us about these devices in terms of how they work and how you try to focus on that relative to this conference. So I think that, you know, fan engagement, one and very big component of it is digital platforms and social media, mobile applications. You know, when I talk to people in the industry and marketing execs that are are trying to engage with their fans, you know, that is obviously the number one thing that comes to mind is what are we doing to engage with fans on their phones? What are we doing to engage with fans when they're at our game um, to make sure that they feel special, that they feel included, that they feel like they're part of the team? How can we use social media and mobile applications to, to do that? Um, so definitely that's a, a huge component. The technology component is a, is a big part of fan engagement. Um, and there's various ways that teams are doing that and using those platforms, whether it is through social networks, just you know communicating with them, sharing with them photos and videos and behind the scenes content. Um, or it might even be mobile applications that they're using to make the fan experience just easier and smoother. So, you know, can you buy your tickets on your phone? Can you, when you're at the game, use a mobile application that tells you, hey, the line at the bathroom in the next, you know, section is shorter than the one that you're standing in. Um, Or, you know, hey, here's a 10% off coupon for a hot dog at our concession stand because, hey, we know you're here at the game. So there's definitely lots of ways that that teams are using technology. But I think one thing that we've learned and that teams are, are definitely understanding at this point is that 
fan engagement is not just about digital and social media. There is so much more to it. Um, you know, it's it's everything you do from this time you sell a ticket to the moment a fan steps foot into that parking lot when they're at the game. Basically, every touch point a fan has with your team is an opportunity to engage with them. Is it strictly sales here, or are we talking about giving fans uh, a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, as the old <laughs> song goes? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that obviously from from a senior management standpoint, from the front office standpoint, yes, this, the fan engagement hopefully will will turn into revenue. It'll turn into selling tickets. It'll turn into you know buying merchandise. But I think it's also just an opportunity to, like I said, make your fans feel like they're a part of the team, making them feel like they matter. Um, you know, including them on on you know discussions that are relevant to your team and your organization and where you're headed with your team. Of course, right now, I think the big one of the big questions is how do you translate that digital engagement into revenue? Um, you know, it's not just about communicating with your fans, but where what's the next step? What's that next level of fan engagement? Which you know, I think that dollars are a big part of it. There you go. Well, we appreciate it. Nathalie Davis, production manager for Q1 Productions. And uh, congratulations. We wish you well. Have a lot of fun with it. Thank you so much. Now, coming up, a conversation with broadcaster Mel Proctor. From the NBA to Major League Baseball, Mel has worked in a number of iconic sports venues. And wait until you hear his story of the night at Camden Yards when Cal Ripken Jr. broke baseball's consecutive game streak. That is straight ahead on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is always great to have the opportunity to renew friendships from people that I've known along the way. And Mel Proctor, a very fine broadcaster, a person who many of you listening know well from his not only radio broadcast work for many years, but also network television, play-by-play of teams like the Texas Rangers, which was where I met Mel, the Washington Nationals, San Diego Padres, Los Angeles Clippers of the NBA. He's worked for NBC, CBS, probably our audience as much as anything. Many who remember you, they want to know how you're doing. I'm doing great. I'm living in San Diego. I came out here to do uh, the San Diego Padres television, did that for five years, and have been here since. And now I'm doing a little of this, a little of that. So everything is fine. Mel, let's go ahead and just lay out a, a large field of stadiums where you have worked. What floats to the top of the stack, the stadiums you enjoyed working in the most? 
Well, what comes to mind is the first baseball stadium that I worked in, which was the old Honolulu Stadium in Hawaii. It was the voice of the Hawaii Islanders. They called it the Termite Palace because it was made out of wood, and supposedly you could hear the termites eating away at the stadium. <laughs> uh, that's where I kind of began my professional career. But I remember when I got the job, it was at night, and I walked up to the uh, walked up the stairs to the press box and sat there thinking about the guys who had preceded me there, Al Michaels, before him, Harry Callis. I kind of dreamed about, well, maybe that'll be me someday, not knowing that it would be. Yeah, indeed. Now, you and I met during the time that you were working and doing the Texas Rangers and old Arlington Stadium, and a lot of people kind of poo-poo old Arlington Stadium. What do you remember about that place? I, I more remember the people that I knew there than the stadium itself. I didn't think the stadium had all that much personality, but um, I remember one time uh, it was before the game and the team was taking batting practice and, and Sparky Lyle was on the team, uh, the veteran relief pitcher who'd been successful with the Yankees and the Red Sox. And there was some guy in the stands who must have been from Boston because you could tell by the accent. He said, hey, Sparky, Sparky, I love you and you're the Red Sox, man. <laughs> and so, you know, Sparky doffed his hat at this guy, and the, the guy goes, Hey, Sparky, Sparky, throw me your hat. So Sparky threw his hat up in the stands to this guy, and Sparky walked a little further, and he goes, I love you, Sparky, I love you. Can I have your uniform? <laughs> and so Sparky took off his uniform top, threw that up to the guy, took off his pants, threw that up in the stands to this guy, and uh, walked into the clubhouse. And the guy said, Thanks, Sparky, love you. Uh, you spent a lot of time in the nation's capital area, both uh, D.C. and Baltimore. And, of course, as you know, they're uh, both very close together. You used to do the bullets at the Cap Center. The thing I remember about the Cap Center was it was a hard place to find. It's funny. My first memory of the Capitol Center, I had taken the job with the Washington Bullets. I was working in Hawaii at the time. And my wife, who was from Maui, I dragged her to the... Uh, nation's capital to do the bullets games this is before the season started so i said let's drive out to the capital center i just want to see this place and so i remember going into the capital center it's sat about 19,035 but it was this huge cavernous arena and it was there was a little bit of lighting but not much but it was mostly dark and very eerie and i remember we sat down in one of the seats there and i just looked around and I can still remember the fear that I felt. I thought, my God, I've never worked in an arena this size. I can't do this. <laughs> so it turned out I could. But I still remember that sense that this is so overwhelming. My first year in the NBA doing the Bullets, they had won the championship the year before. And they again made it to the finals and lost to Seattle that time. But I thought, this is great. My first year in the NBA and... I'm in, the, I'm in the finals. I could get used to this. Well, in 20-some years, I never made it back. Yeah. Neither did they. You've been at the microphone for some great moments. We all have the privilege uh, in this business of calling some great moments, and you've had some of the greatest ones. Uh, you were in Baltimore in 1995, the day that uh, Cal Ripken Jr. broke Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive games played. Well, I knew it was going to be a, a huge event. So I wanted to make sure I got there early. We lived about half hour, 45 minutes away from Camden. I left about four hours before game time. 
and it took me a half hour to get there. So I got there like three and a half hours before game time, and I was the only one there. You know, I just sat around and twiddled my thumbs for all this time. And then I had to do an interview with uh, Cal Ripken before the game. Uh, I remember doing that, asking him about Lou Gehrig, if he knew anything about Lou Gehrig. And he said, not really, but he planned to, to educate himself once the streak was over. But what happened in the game was, was incredible. I mean, the stadium was packed when Cal reached the point where it was an official game and uh, was announced and he came out. Uh, took a bow, ended up taking seven curtain calls. He'd try to go back to the dugout, and the crowd started cheering again. He'd come back out and wave to him. He'd go back in the dugout. They kept cheering. This went on for 20 minutes. They cheered nonstop. Well, finally, in the dugout, Bobby Bonilla and Rafael Palmero, two of his teammates, pushed him out and said, take a victory lap. It was nothing that was planned, but he did. He he circled around the stadium, down the first base line, down the right field line, shaking hands with fans and uh, people on the grounds crew that he knew, and people were just going nuts. And he came around center field, down the left field line, and Cal reached home plate, went back, uh, and his family, his wife and two kids were there, and uh, you know he kissed his wife and hugged the kids, and then the speeches began, and it was, I mean, it was an incredible thing to be a part of. So how in the world did you go ahead and uh, and describe something which lasted, the moment of which lasted a long, long time? Well, you know, the game was actually being televised as well by ESPN, and Chris Berman was doing the game, and, and he got a lot of credit for doing just that, for shutting up, which is hard to believe about Chris Berman, but... He actually did tone it down and let the crowd play. Well, I didn't do that. And at the time, after I read descriptions of how well he did and everything, I thought to myself, ah, I should have just shut up. But then I I talked to a few people who said, no, 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 your perspective is much different than his is. You've been around Cal. You've been around Cal's family. Uh, You know them. And as he made the trip around in the victory lap, you pointed out people that otherwise the audience wouldn't have known that it was his dad and his mom, Vi and uh, his sister and his brother, all people that, you know, you were the only one who knew who they were and could identify them. So you just took a different approach. And I ended up getting praise for the way I did it, too, although it was much different than Chris Berman did it or Vince Scully would have done it. We want to wish you all the best with your new book, The Little General, A Baseball Life. We invite everybody to look for it. Where do they look in order to find it, Mel, when it does come out? Well, it's at all Barnes & Noble stores or online or also on Amazon uh, online. It's both a hardback and and an e-book. Uh, I should point out I had another book that came out about a year before called I Love the Work But I Hate the Business, and it's got a lot of these kind of stories in it. So people who like broadcasting stories uh, would enjoy that as well, and that's also available in the in the same stores. Mel Proctor, our guest, well-known broadcaster and author, and uh, gave you a little bit of some inside baseball and uh, other sports regarding stadiums as well. Now, when we return, Mark Madoran will join me. We're going to talk shop. That is next on SB Nation Radio. 
How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Well, it's time to talk shop once again as we examine this week's stadium headlines. And for that, we turn to Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. StadiumsUSA.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information, but you know it doesn't stop there. You can also listen to podcasts of our program, test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site, and all of that is available for you at StadiumsUSA.com. And that quiz site is easy. Watch how I do <laughs> later in this program. All right, Mark, let's get at it here. Mark, you need a scorecard to keep track of all the new venues that are hosting postseason conference tournament games this year. So uh, you have the scorecard. Fill us in. Well, it's like they took all the conferences and put the names in a bowl (laughs) and pulled them out randomly to see who would play where because (laughs) everything has totally changed. Let's start at the beginning. The American Athletic Conference was supposed to be in Orlando to wrap up a two-year run that began in 2016. However, with the Amway Center hosting the NCAA tournament on the first weekend, the decision was made after Orlando was awarded the 2016-2017 conference tournaments. Orlando punted its second opportunity to 2018, and Hartford's Excel Center will host instead. This March and next, Brooklyn will take a two-year break from hosting the Atlantic 10 to host the ACC instead, with the Atlantic 10 shifting over to Pittsburgh. Now, here's the big one. Hmm. The Big 10 will host its conference tournament on the East Coast for the first time ever at Washington, D.C.'s Verizon Center, host of last year's ACC tournament. Next year, the Big Ten moves to Madison Square Garden, where the tournament has to be moved a week earlier so the Big East can have the Madison Square Garden for its traditional tournament dates. Mm -hmm. The Pac-12 tournament has been very successful in Las Vegas since relocating from L.A. in 2013. The event this year is on the move again, going from the MGM Grand Garden Arena, which is much smaller, to the new T-Mobile Arena on the Strip, which is the home of the Golden Knights NHL games for the next three years. So that's a complete shift. And then finally, this will be the second and final year that the Horizon League plays at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. It will stay in Detroit next season, but it'll shift over to the new Little Caesars Arena in downtown Motor City. So that's a quick rundown on what's going on in college basketball. Boy, I'll tell you, it sure is unusual to get used to the Big Ten playing this year in the Washington, D.C. area. That is so different of a feel. We, of course, traditionally associate it with one of two places, Indianapolis at the Bankers Life Fieldhouse or Chicago at the United Center. So this is really off the footprint. It is a switch in conference tournament play venues, and uh, it points to the increased emphasis on marketing, Bill. The Big Ten's move east is strictly a marketing move, which the conference hopes will increase viewership 
of the Big Ten Network and interest in the in the schools that are close by, both Maryland and Rutgers. Mm -hmm. The ACC is following suit. It's a marketing move. They're shifting to Brooklyn, big New York market, lots of fans to watch TV and watch a tournament. Mark, here's another twist with the Raiders, and we're always keeping an eye on them and the Raiders and that Las Vegas saga. As you told us last week, funding for the new dome stadium in the desert would happen eventually. You were virtually certain of it based on your recent visit. Now, what have you to report? Well, this has been another interesting week for the Raiders. I can say that. <laughs> the team has obtained a financing commitment from Bank of America for the shortfall, the $650 million shortage after casino owner Sheldon Adelson withdrew. The next major hurdle is owner approval. Based on NFL relocation rules, 24 owners must approve the relocation. The next owners meeting is at the end of this month, March 26th through 29th in Phoenix. Now, rumor has it that the owners have questions that the Raiders probably are going to take some time to answer. So there may not be a vote at that meeting in Phoenix. The next giant vote is coming up probably at a meeting that's going to be actually in late May in Chicago. And I think many of the owners want to see that there's a viability to the Bank of America loan. Mark, we're learning more about the unique design of Kroenke World in Los Angeles, the future home of the Rams and, of course, now the Chargers. Very interesting story here. Fill us in on a rather unique material that's being used as a part of this project. Well, the new L.A. home of the Rams and Chargers, and we affectionately call it Kroenke World, <laughs> um, is uh, going through HKS, the uh, known stadium architect. Some of the design details have been released, and there's a few surprises. HKS has specified an aluminum and ETFE skin that creates a triangular facade or canopy over and around the playing field. Mm. The panels are specially designed by HKS with a unique pattern of holes. The holes form a design along the exterior of the building. There are some 36,000 of these perforated panels that need to be completed in order to finish the project. The stadium will be completed in 2019, and it will be the world's most expensive stadium at $2.6 billion for a capacity of only about 70,000 seats. Here's a story, Mark. I just can't believe that this would happen in Pittsburgh, of all places, a dispute between the NFL team, the Steelers, obviously, and Heinz Field. Normally, this is an absolute quiet zone. Take us to the Steel City and tell us the story. Well, the Steelers are not getting along with their landlord. A spokesperson said the working relationship between the Steelers and the Sports and Exhibition Authority of Pittsburgh is very strained right now. A good part of the discontent is the Steelers' desire to put in for bidding of the Super Bowl 57, which would be in 2023, and the authority's lack of cooperation and planning for that bid. Remember how much coordination there has to go on because the Super Bowl goes on for two weeks before the actual game. So there's a tremendous amount of activity that needs to be set up around that stadium. And I guess the stadium authority has just said, we're not interested in looking into this. You and I both been to Heinz Field, and it's a wonderful facility. All right, Mark, I'm going to open the door. Why don't you and I hop in the Wayback Machine and share some important dates in stadium history? This week in 1967, Bill, the expansion New Orleans Saints 
begin selling tickets for their inaugural season. They sold 20,000 tickets on the first day. <laughs> I don't know how wow. they had time to sell 20,000 in one day, yeah, but they did. The Saints would call Tulane Stadium home until the Superdome became available in 1975. It's time for our segment known as Stadium USA Trivia. Ready to go, Mark. I'm ready, bat in hand, so serve okay. it up here. <laughs> this one's right up your alley. Bill. Okay. And you're on a winning streak. Yeah, I am. <laughs> With college basketball conference tournament action ready to go, which arena has hosted the most ACC men's college basketball tournaments? Mm-hmm. Is it the Omni in Atlanta? Mm-hmm. Is it the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte? Is it the Reynolds Coliseum in Raleigh? Mm-hmm. Or is it the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina? Well, you know, the Greensboro Coliseum, that is a big facility. I've been there uh, when uh, Marquette played in the NCAA Finals, and they've increased the size since then. I know they've held it there. Uh, The Reynolds Coliseum, that would go back a few years, obviously. But, you know, I'm kind of thinking about the Omni in Atlanta, an arena which I really didn't like very much. But uh, I have a feeling that they have hosted it the most an excellent guess oh, but incorrect oh, so much for my winning streak <laughs> actually it's the greensboro coliseum they've hosted the men's acc tournament 23 times wow. okay. since 1967 mark a pleasure as always we'll see you next week take care bill have a good week all right you too mark Madoran. we talk shop don't run away now coming up We're going to talk about another really big building and a documentary that traces the origins of that building, Iconic Rough Arena. That's next on SB Nation Radio. This is the 40th anniversary of an amazing facility, Rupp Arena and the surrounding Lexington Center. It's actually part of a large complex in Lexington and has had a huge impact. Probably the most obvious to most of us is the arena itself, which was built on a massive, massive scale. Not long ago, a plan was announced to do a documentary celebrating the anniversary of the plan for this building and the construction of the building. An award-winning producer and documentarian, Arthur Rouse, is the man who's gone ahead and put this together. We're visiting with him now. Arthur, let's dig into it. When did you get the word that uh, this project was awaiting you. It had to be a thrill when you learned that uh, you were going to have a chance to work on a project like this, I would think. Oh, absolutely, Bill. I'm a First of all, I'm a big fan of the Wildcats, and I'm a Lexingtonian, so I, <laughs> I know the history of basketball uh, inside and out, uh, especially as pertains to UK. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an oral history project. There was a time when uh, the uh, original consultants, and I call them the champions, the, the folks that made this project happen, were gathered together, not by me, uh, uh, but were recorded more or less for posterity, and there was a box of videotape with interviews, oh, about 20-plus hours of uh, interviews with the folks that made the project happen, and it went uh, to a closet. Uh, for safekeeping. And then uh, two years ago, it came out of the closet and said, uh, you know, somebody make me into a film. So um, (laughs) I got the word about two years ago that this footage existed. And of course, then was just thrilled to have an opportunity to try to put it together. 
And uh, this was done on a big scale. Your documentary reflects that, and that's as it should be, because this was a big-time project. Give us a scope for the actual design here and what the actual community impact was for the entire project. Well, uh, let me take you back just a little bit. The University of Kentucky, when it was at Memorial Coliseum, Mm-hmm. Uh, was winning national championships and very well known in the basketball world. Memorial Coliseum was a beautiful and is still a beautiful building. Uh, it just didn't seat many people. And uh, so, um, you know, you just couldn't get enough folks from the state and, and anywhere else uh, in to see a game. And uh, a group of citizens um, kind of having a little fun, but with a very serious intent said, you know, the only way you can get a ticket is to be an alley cat, meaning you hang out in the alley and see if you can buy something from a scalper. And uh, they suggested that, you know, with the end of Adolph Rupp's era coming up and his retirement imminent, uh, that maybe there should be a bigger facility built, perhaps in his name, you know, as a as a tribute to his good works here at UK. So the university at that time was very comfortable with uh, Memorial Coliseum as it was and was really trying to install a bigger football program and was interested in building a football stadium. And so the proposal went out, well, why don't we build a new basketball arena right next to the football stadium? The university basically turned that down. To make a long story short, the university said maybe and then said no. And upon doing that, the Alley Cats, these these, uh, civically-minded folks, uh, they became resolved. They were going to get something done, and it really worked out for the better because – then what happened was, well, why don't we take the facility downtown and let's move it off campus? And and the idea started to percolate. And um, you may know that in the in the late 60s, all across the country, there was a kind of a decline in city cores. And Lexington's core was no different. We were we kind of lost our agrarian base, and downtown was basically uh, pretty desolate, I would say. Mm-hmm. So. The idea, let's bring the stadium downtown, let's bring the arena downtown, and let's do something with that as a focal point, really launch the whole Lexington Center story. Arthur, you've been in Rupp Arena many times, looking back on it now and having been in and out of it. What about the arena works well, and perhaps what didn't work quite as well as the original plan and the people who planned it had hoped? Well, I can tell you one thing. When when the group got together, the folks that were mostly interested, primarily interested in the basketball arena, they traveled and they looked at other larger facilities around the country. And the uh, challenge went out to the managers that were going to get together and do the design build. You know, this has got to be the biggest, but it's got to be a basketball arena, not just a big room where they play basketball games. It's got to be a basketball arena that is perfect for the basketball viewing audience and perfect for the teams. Uh, and then everything else can spin out of that. You can build the, the convention center and, and other functions around the edges, the hotel, the shopping and all that. But don't build a big room and then have basketball in it sometimes. Build a basketball arena. So they they literally stepped off the viewing distances and the, and the perspectives and the angles and where things had to be and where speakers were going to be all for the intent of having basketball played in there and then stretching that out to the largest size that they could not affecting the basketball game. You know, it's kind of interesting because as they were designing it, Jack Givens' team was was making the transition out of Memorial into Rupp, and and he was in there and shooting around. And even the players, after the, of course, after the place was built, they were fine-tuning it so that it worked well for, for basketball. But in my opinion, uh, as a guy that went to both Memorial and Rupp, uh, 
going in the rough for the first time was just unbelievable because of the size of it. And very loyal fans, uh, very vocal fans, and a beautiful facility like that that people could get in and out of easily. I mean, it was magical. I used to love Memorial, but the impact of having 23,000 fans there was uh, just a huge benefit, I think. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's a great story to tell. It is so impactful in terms of what has happened with Kentucky basketball, downtown Lexington. Arthur Rouse, we thank you very much for the visit. Uh, Continued success with Game Changer, the Lexington Center story. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. It is a pleasure. Thank you. Arthur Rouse, who has produced this wonderful documentary, Game Changer, The Lexington Center Story. That's our program for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Bill Hazen saying, stay tuned. We have a full day of sports coverage coming up on SB Nation Radio.